Nothing discussed with Dr. Yusuf Bekova in this conversation is meant to diagnose or treat any condition, or takes the place of talking with your own healthcare professionals. Aloha, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From Anxiety to Clarity. I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich of Sutter Health Kahimohala, and here we are coming into the last week of October as we watch the state open up to the uh, you know, Trans-Pacific travelers who have the pre-travel protocol. We've also had a couple of days of Oahu moving into Tier 2, although some of those movements may seem a little smaller than what maybe some would have liked by this point. It is still forward motion, and we're going to take a look at what that may mean as we're considering the arc of the pandemic through the lens of mental health. And joining me today is Dr. Noza Yosefbekova, and she is the incoming president of the Hawaii Psychological Association. And we're very grateful that she was able to make some time to spend this morning with us. So aloha, Dr. Yosefakova. Nice to see you. Aloha, Beth Ann. Thank you so much for your lovely introduction. It is my pleasure being here. Well, you've been watching what has been happening as we've all been watching and engaging and feeling all the things that we've been feeling because none of us has been exempt from any of this. And I'm wondering, as you know, I, I mentioned also the arc of the pandemic so far in Hawaii, as we've come through you know, the, the late winter into spring and summer and watched the surges happen and now watching great surges happening on the mainland, which is leading to obviously concern here, but at the same time, people here seemingly feeling that we're having this sense of forward motion, that, that something better could be coming. Are you seeing in any way this show up in, in some of your patients or is it too soon to tell? Well, certainly, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an ambivalent type of um, process, it seems like. I have some of my patients who are extremely excited to gain a sense of normalcy or excited to see um, a little bit of action happening outside, such as, you know, simple stuff like traffic building up a little bit more now, or people being outside and taking pictures and really enjoying the outdoors. And then we also have another, you know, group of people who are highly, highly anxious, and even more anxious now as we are opening up. The group of people who are more highly anxious, are these people who have never sought mental health help before? You know, it's an interesting um, dynamic because so these individuals, um, you know, who are already predisposed to experience anxiety. And so I certainly have a cluster of new folks, come, you know, seeking mental health for the very first time in their life, simply because they just don't know how to deal with this anymore. They have exhausted all of their coping skills, all of their mechanisms of functioning on a healthy or healthier level so you know it's a so it's a cluster of new people reaching out to mental health providers and also existing patients who have already been in therapy with me for quite some time but now their anxiety has exacerbated because of this pandemic um, also i'm seeing folks creating these 
you know, psychosomatic type of symptoms because of anxiety. Um, you know, one day they wake up and the body just doesn't feel well for various reasons. It doesn't have to be, you know, COVID related, but suddenly they automatically begin to really worry and stress over, oh my gosh, is this COVID? And, you know, is, are my body aches related to COVID? Did I catch it somehow? Am I experiencing a mild version of COVID? So it's, you know, it's an interesting type of dynamic that I'm seeing in my private practice and also out in the community. Um, you know, some people are just, um, you know, highly anxious for, um, you know, various reasons. Um, again, could be because of they were already exposed to anxiety previously, you know, kind of like a pre-existing condition of anxiety um, now has exacerbated. Um, others just develop this new anxiety and they're trying to learn what is anxiety, how does it feel in the body, and most importantly, what do I do with it now? You mentioned that there are people who wake with fatigue and they don't really understand why, um, and yet we know that there's only so much that a body can handle before it starts to rebel in various ways without necessarily saying, hello, it's this or it's that. It just simply wants to rest or stop or needs to have some intercession so that there isn't this sense of onslaught and and people in many ways have felt that this has been a, an onslaught a barrage of of new ways of having to behave understanding uh, something that's been so contrary to our way of life here where we're very huggy we're very touchy we share food we share stuff we we have this sense of enveloping ourselves because we are after all on an island or in a set of islands and very far from everyone else. And so it's been a real interruption of the way most of us have been taught to behave. And yet without that uh, intercession, we would have obviously a lot uh, of, of much more serious situations than we will have happened. And people are learning the difference and they're learning that love also means doing all these other things. So very clearly people have been able to learn and are continuing to learn so that they can protect others as they also protect themselves. All that said, though, when you are talking to your patients, and in general, when you look out at the community, are you seeing a sense of a real understanding and a greater level of, of not just understanding, but of responsiveness to all of this? Or is this just something that a few of us may be seeing in different pockets? Not sure what do you mean by that. I mean that, you know, with, we've seen so much coming at us and people telling us the same things all over again. You know, the three W's, watch your distance, wash, wear a mask, all these things right. to where almost for some people it has become white noise and they aren't necessarily complying with it. And other people are jumping up and, and, and saying, yes, that's what you need to do and becoming far more active as voices to say this is so important and watching the disparity of those two ideas and the two ways that people are dealing. I'm just curious what you're seeing in, in your practice and in general, when you look out at the community, as we've been talking about this for a long time and whether messaging is working and whether people are really learning how to better cope with this in a way that's very different from the way that we've all been taught to behave or that most of us have been taught Absolutely. to behave. Yeah, and, and spot on there, you know, I'm, I'm noticing a very similar dichotomy um, you know, we have a set of people who are highly, highly conscientious and 
very pro hygiene and following the rules and being very obedient and compliant. And then we also have another set of um, folks who just, you know, kind of maxed out and they don't want to deal with this anymore. But a common denominator here is anxiety because with, you know, anxiety pushes us towards action and activates the survival me mechanism of keeping up with the hygiene, maintaining social distance and following all the rules that will help you stay healthy and survive. And anxiety can also push you in the direction of avoidance. You know, this is too anxiety provoking. This is too much for my mind to handle. I would rather just escape and avoid or just, you know, avoid of following the rules, avoid um, following um, all these precautionary measures, um, you know, but again, what is the common denominator here? And that is anxiety. Um, some people face the anxiety and take action, others avoid. And unfortunately, that's how we deal with, you know, as, as humans. Um, it is not uncommon for us to avoid some kind of a threat or fear. Um, and really, if you, if you look at the, you know, neuroscience of um, anxiety, it, you know, it, it, it stems from a threat. And, you know, mm -hmm. I will, it, it's, it's a, you know, very basic type of explanation I'm providing here. There's, um, you know, the brain related type of activities that happen that start out with the amygdala. Um, amygdala is, um, you know, very um, old type of um, organ that we have in the brain. And, you know, so when the amygdala detects threat, the mind, you know, interprets the threat as fear. And as we, you know, the, the brain is a very complex type of um, organ. It will project fear, fear into the future that will translate into anxiety. So, you know, we give into all the what if type of thinking, all the, you know, anxious type of thinking. Um, sometimes it becomes a little bit too much to handle and a person naturally would try to avoid. Um, how do you avoid? You avoid through um, healthy coping skills and also unhealthy coping skills. Unhealthy coping skills, as we know, is um, that's actually been quite prevalent is alcohol use. Alcohol use, um, substance use has drastically increased. Um, and, what, the, and, and has it increased even more than when we saw it increase when we looked back at it in the springs? And that, that made a lot of news around April. It uh, started that, that out absolutely it up. absolutely it spiked up and right in the beginning in the first um round of quarantine um then it kind of leveled out and it spiked up again and if i you know recall this correctly um maui um the the amount of um the number of duis um the that the police officers reported it it's just tremendously amplified. Um, I'm, I don't know what the statistics are here on Oahu, but Maui seems to be really, really hit with this um, poor coping skill of alcohol use and drunk driving and other substances, unfortunately. Yeah, but then if you look at it, you know, why are we given into unhealthy coping skills? Um, our healthy coping skills were taken away, such as, you know, going out for a walk or uh, exercise. The gyms have been closed. The parks have been closed. Um, you know, movie theaters um, or just, you know, meeting with friends um, for a cup of tea or coffee at a coffee shop. Um, mm -hmm. 
going to the mall, just window shopping, all these pleasant activities that we were able to do in the past safely with full confidence and trust. Suddenly that's been taken away. Um, and, you know, when you're cooked up in the comfort of your home, certainly it's nice in the beginning. And then over time, boredom kicks in. And over time, the mind just tries to look for, well, what can I do? And if you pair it with negative emotions, it's easy to reach for alcohol. It's easy to reach for other unhealthy habits, um, overeating, um, you know, just uh, um, sleeping too much or even maybe um, not following your proper sleep hygiene. That's, you know, sleep problems actually been another problem um, in private practice. Um, I have quite a few patients who have been just completely off their sleep pattern um, for various reasons, um, you know, unemployment, um, anxiety, worry, substance use, um, family conflict that adds on to negative emotions and anxiety. So there, it's, it's a very complex type of process. In looking at where we were even before COVID, when we knew, for example, that approximately 20% of our population over the age of 13 would mm -hmm. experience some form of mental health issue in any given year. And now we are dealing with COVID and many mental health professionals say, we're gonna see waves of this as we move into the future because we just don't know what all of what you've just described really will mean for us long-term. There are no longitudinal studies about what happens when you have somebody in a pandemic of this type because we've never experienced this. So there's a great deal of un unknown leading to another set of anxieties. But with children, with adults, with all of us coping with each other, we really don't know what the coming years may mean for people's mental health. Uh, just looking at the Mental Health America, uh, their annual state of mental health in America, and, and some of the stats which haven't changed since before COVID or have worsened since COVID, one of the ones that really struck me was that you know, youth who are experiencing severe depression or anxiety, um, particularly if they are you know, self-identifying as being of mixed race, that shot up to 12.4%. And that's a lot for just you know, that demographic. It's a little lower, although it went up by half a percentage point for you know, youth in general who are in that category. But as we are here in Hawaii and so many people are of mixed race, and that we regard ourselves as this, you know, this, this great uh, you know, place where you can be of mixed race, where that seems to be a normal thing. Are you at all concerned that this will strike us more than in, in other places? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, this statistical data is very, very concerning and we're still, you know, just on standby for increased rates of depression and anxiety. Um, the most recent research actually, you know, says that the prevalence of depression and anxiety is more than three times the rate in 2020 than it was in 2019. So intuitively, you know, as you know, psychologists, we 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 kind of know that okay, it may get worse um, by the end of the year, but, you know, beginning of 2021. Um, so you know, we are definitely mindful of you know of this 
situation and the long-term effects of COVID. You know, at the same time, Beth Ann, if we, you know, really think about this year, this year has been extremely, extremely challenging, not only with the stress of this pandemic, but also, you know, pre-existing issues coming to surface like the systemic racism, police brutality, extreme political division, financial uncertainty, the economic crisis here in Hawaii and in, in, on the mainland parental burnout, the collision of work and home life. I mean, how do you manage all of this? Or decision okay. fatigue, you know, just simple decision fatigue. Do I let my child go outside and play because he needs a little bit of fresh air and exercise? Or do I keep him safe at home? Or do I send my child to go to school on campus? Or do I keep my child here at home? So this ongoing decision-making and just, everything that we've gone through so far in 2020 has been absolutely mind-blowing and so you know I, i'm not i won't be surprised if if depression and the rates of depression and anxiety increase even more in 2021 um, the american psychological association releases um, an annual report of stress in america um, interestingly, they began to release um, this report, Stress in America report, every month starting the summer, and you know it explains why. Um, so the so what you know their survey, recent survey, found that 72% of Americans reported that this is the lowest point of history that they can remember. At the same time, though. Another, you know, on the, on the positive aspect of this, so if we have to, you know, evaluate some, some negative um, effects of this pandemic and also um, bring in a little bit of the positive effects of this pandemic, interestingly, about 82% of parents also reported that they were actually quite satisfied being home with their children, being able to connect with their children. So it's an interesting dynamic. And, you know, from a mental health perspective, we are prepared to, to see, you know, an increase in depression and anxiety and even maybe post-traumatic stress disorder, grief, um, you know, financial stress and other psychological factors and stressors. At the same time, though, as psychologists, I think it's also important to identify some of the positive effects that, um, you know, this pandemic brought us, such as you know, maybe, you know, finally connecting with family or slowing down with work or um, becoming more mindful of our health, our um, hygiene or um, um, different um, habits that we would need to, we need to pay attention to. And we've heard that in some of the conversations that we've been having over the time that we've done this series that you know this is not all just a dark story now this is not to minimize in any way shape or form those families who have had family members lose their lives because of COVID-19 who are experiencing incredible economic stress and family stress for so many reasons but in there there are these positive nuggets where those if capitalized on might lead to a better post of uh, you know at least post-lockdown, post-having-to-deal-with-restrictions uh, world. And that may not be for another year or so once we actually have a vaccine that works that's widely disseminated. Uh, we're probably looking at about another year if we listen to 
some of what the national sources are telling us. But that to the side, though, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about a little bit is that, you know, we have kids who are already dealing with mental health issues, all kinds of issues. And for some, this has just become just another one in the pot that they have to cope with. And depending upon whether they are being treated, and most of them aren't, I think the, the Mental Health America said, you know, 60% still aren't getting treatment, those who need it, and 60% not getting it. And so we've got that issue that's brewing too, not just the ones that may be new to the scene, but those who are also really needing treatment that we knew about. How are we able to, or what do you see as being the, the path forward to be able to ready this state so that we're able to better cope with all of our kids and our youth, as well as our adults who need mental health treatment, who may have you know, not been getting it before or maybe getting some of it before. And now they, plus all this new contingent of folks, both you know, youth, child and adult, it's gonna be huge, which sort of leads back to the idea of the wave, but knowing that it's coming is one thing. But how do you see our state either you know, preparing well for it or, or not preparing well for it? And, and what are you doing with the Hawaii Psychological Association to be able to move that in whatever direction you think is appropriate? You know, this is an excellent question. And, you know, it comes down to education. We really need to take the time to educate our children and our youth and educate them or speak to them on their level that they can understand and not assume that they will get this concept right away or assume that they will remember this. Um, you know, children and especially adolescents, um, they go through this, you know, phase of short phase of hypofrontality, meaning that the executive functioning is just not just there yet, not fully developed, which means, you know, they may need frequent reminders. They may need some reminders to slow down a little, not to act on their impulses, uh, really, you know, just continuously reminding them about their um, you know, hygiene and the importance of washing hands, importance of maintaining social distance, um, especially, you know, wearing masks and stuff like that. Um, you know, so I, I, I truly believe that if we continue educating our children, continue educating our adolescents and continue having these meaningful conversations with them and checking in with them in terms of, well, how do you feel about this? How does this make you feel? And as opposed to, you know, give in to our own assumptions, whether as parents or um, teachers or even professionals. It's important to tap into their internal world and, you know, really allow them or, or give them space, safe space to express themselves and see what it is like for them to be going through this type of um, pandemic or this major change. You, you know, make the point. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> now, I just wanted to ask you about one of the points that you just made, because, you know, we know that kids have a really hard time being able to see the consequences that may come down the pike, because they are, you know, really, if they can see next Tuesday, that's far, you know, and exactly. that has always been a tough thing with understanding what consequential thought or when that really begins to crystallize in the mind of a young person and usually not till they're well into their 20s. And so for kids who are feeling this incredible sense of 
grief and loss and lack of ability to, to rise up. For a lot of them, that's leading them to, uh, to suicidal ideation, some of them to try it. We we're seeing that our, our suicide rate or attempts of suicide also increasing. And that's a very scary thing for all of us, but especially for those families who are involved who may not even realize that a child may be in trouble or may see that this is the only way out or that the world doesn't welcome him or her. So who would care, particularly for our kids who are really in at-risk situations, uh, that, that really becomes quite a concern. And I'm, I'm wondering what it is that you would like to see us focus on more or how under your leadership with the HPA, is this going to become something that we're focusing on a little bit more? Absolutely. I think it is a very important area to focus on and, you know, again, to pay attention to those children and adolescents who already had a pre-existing condition of um, depression, anxiety, um, or, you know, trauma, childhood trauma, um, you know, coming from abusive households, domestic violence, um, ongoing or chronic interpersonal conflicts and stuff like that. This pandemic is not helpful, um, you know, for that population specifically because um, it really creates even more isolation, more loneliness, um, more grief and you know, it's important to highlight non-bereavement type of loss, meaning that the loss of, you know, certain friendships or the loss of, um, you know, going to school or okay. hoping, yeah. yeah, or hoping, you know, to see your cousins um, on the mainland or, you know, planning for this vacation um, or hoping to, um, you know, do something outdoors, either with friends or, you know, joining some kind of a club or just doing something that's, you know, very simple adolescent childlike related type of activity. So that type of loss is also important to address because that can easily fit into depression, that can easily fit into hopelessness. And hopelessness is a, you know, is a primary factor that leads to suicide and suicidal ideations. So again, you know, being just being open with children with adolescents and asking them how about their emotions how do they feel how are they coping um, also helping them to focus on well what is going well when everything else feels just so yucky and negative really helping them shift their mind to you know a little bit on the positive side of the spectrum and it can be something very small and basic that hey you know, I got up today, I made my bed, or, you know, I took a shower without, without being yelled at by mom or dad, <laughs> or I attended my um, online class without, you know, being prompted by a parent. So it's, it's, you know, very small actions that can be celebrated and can be um, very validating as well. And it's important to validate what they're going through. And it, again, it's important to give our adolescents and children a safe space to process their emotions, to really ask them, what has it been like for you during this pandemic? Because this is an individualized type of experience. Although we are all in this together, there's this common right. humanity. And at the same time, this is an, an individualized type of process. Leveraging that thought to the entire population, we've got lots of subpopulations here too, 
which exist in a very different way from each other. And yet, as you say, there's this commonality of the experience. We were shown not that long ago that we weren't really paying attention to subpopulations. And we watched, for example, the COVID spike happen within the Pacific Islander community because we really weren't talking to them specifically in the way that you mentioned a moment ago, speaking to someone in their own way, whether it's a child or an adolescent or an adult. Do you see that we're gonna to have to have more of these kinds of conversations or hooey's happening within subpopulations going forward to be able to cope with whatever mental health waves continue to happen through 2021 and beyond as we have all of us trying to, to cope with life with COVID in whatever form it, it may be? Absolutely, I think it's, it's important to proceed mindfully and especially culturally mindfully in this situation. Every culture has its own rituals, traditions, values, beliefs. Um, some cultures are very collectivistic, which in this situation may not be helpful because, you know, as you know, I come from a collectivistic, um, you know, culture and family. And, you know, I've gotten used to greeting my mother with hugs and kisses. I've gotten used to greeting, um, you know, my other family members with hugs and kisses. And suddenly that has been taken away from me and, and that feels uncomfortable, that is unnatural. And for, you know, other, you know, cultures or um, subpopulations, it's important to address what is within the cultural norm. And it's important to continue to educate and, and implement you know, positive changes that, and, and also um, safe-like type of um, changes that will um, help them in a way preserve their cultural um, um, you know, traditions or rituals and stuff like that. And at the same time, being mindful of each other, um, especially um, you know, those folks in multi-generational type of homes and being mindful of not um, transmitting this um, virus onto others and stuff like that. So again, you know, being culturally mindful is crucial here. As we move forward with mental health, which seems to be having, I don't want to just say a moment, but that there's at least a lot more attention being paid to mental health where we're, it's, you know, it's showing up in tweets from the governor and certainly from the lieutenant governor and right. all the organizations within Hawaii, which are trying to focus on their particular niche of mental health as, as well as the Department of Health. How do we leverage this time with paying attention to mental health into greater parity with physical health? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, it's a, you know, how do I answer this question? <laughs> well, it's one you know that, that knows that you know we've all been wrestling with for a very long time because we see that when the emphasis has been placed on health, that health mm -hmm. is talked about in very physical terms, mm -hmm. and yet one's mental health is very allied with one's physical health. I mean, there's that adage that, you know, body follows mind, et cetera. But, Absolutely. you know, forgetting that we've never really come to terms with it. There's always been that stigma 
which is you know slowly ever so slowly seemingly like it's 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 just disappearing in in small bits but to really have parity with wellness with you know physical and and mental health to create total wellness that seems to be showing up in ways that we haven't seen before how do we push that envelope out more so that it doesn't become a big deal i mean once upon a time it was a big deal to talk about cancer and you you know i can remember older members of my family whispering about it as if even just talking about it meant you might get it um and the same thing applied to you know, mental illness or just any sort of mental health issue that people were very reticent to talk about it because it meant something terrible for your family. It was a black mark potentially. Um, and right. now the openness to talking about it, obviously we have celebrities, we've got people in, in sports and, and athletes and all kinds of people who are, you know, heads of, of great companies who are talking about their own anxiety, their depression, their feeling of alienation, all those things. How do we move this so that it doesn't become such a big deal anymore to talk about any more than you would talk about heart disease or diabetes? Right. Yeah. Well, you know, we've already, you know, kind of started um, normalizing uh, mental health in a way that you, you, you don't have to be completely crazy to go see a shrink. Um, historically, you know, you, you had to be, um, you know, um, a person with a schizophrenia would would be the only person who would you know end up seeing a psychologist or a psychiatrist and certainly and thank goodness times have changed you know you can see a psychologist for stress management or um, just for some you know life transition or life transitional type of um, issues and I think the people are beginning to talk more about that and people are beginning to view mental health as not as scary as it was before. And, you know, what I really appreciate is the movement of integrative health, uh, meaning that primary care doctors, primary care physicians are beginning to um, collaborate with um, behavioral health um, professionals and they're beginning to make these referrals to psychologists, therapists, social workers, and stuff like that. So, you know, we are getting a sense of collaboration, and I think we just need to continue strengthening that. Um, continue reminding people that, you know, it's okay to, you know, it, it's okay to take care of your brain because we've gotten so used to taking care of our eyes, our teeth, our, you know, ears. We have, you know, all these different specialists for every part of the organ, if you really think about it, but then we forget about the brain and, and it all comes down to let's, you know, let's take care of the brain and, you know, it's okay to see a psychologist to attend to your brain. You don't have to have, uh, you know, severe mental illness to see a psychologist or a behavioral health professional. So we're beginning to see more and more of that. And my hope is that we'll continue normalizing mental health and slowly shift away from the stigma that's associated, you know, with something really heavy and negative um, again it comes down to education and providing accurate education and openly you know talking about this and normalizing it and validating it um, 
negative emotions a lot of times or avoidant behaviors um, a lot of times stem from you know some sort of invalidation meaning that you know if you share with a family member or with a friend that hey you know i have a i have an appointment with my you know psychologist and suddenly there's this reaction like what like why do you need that just talk to me i'm here for you and that's you know although the intention is good but that provides invalidation suddenly you begin to feel ashamed of having this appointment with your psychologist. So again, it's important to provide accurate information, accurate you know, education related to why do we have psychologists? Why do we have psychiatrists or uh, master's level therapists and social workers? And you know, let's utilize this help. Insurance companies do a great job covering for all of these services. It's readily available to most of us. Um, and you know, let's utilize this. Let's integrate it, and let's you know, pay attention to our brain health. All those things, I think, that would be on well, certainly on, on my wish list for us as we go forward. There's also the reality that we don't have enough docs. We don't have enough specialists who know how to deal well with children. You know, whether they're a child psychologist or a child psychiatrists, adolescent specialists, all kinds of people. You mentioned that different organs have their own various specialists. We need more of those specialists in Hawaii too. How do you think that we can attract those or grow more of our own in the current situation? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, I think it's, I mean, it, it has been an ongoing type of challenge, um, not only for the adult population, but even more for children and adolescents and absolutely spot on the shortage of psychiatrists here on the island who would see children and adolescents is just outrageous. Um, so how do we do that? You know, let's, you know, I, I think it's important to provide these opportunities or educational opportunities to, to our, you know, local population who wishes to go to school, who who wish to pursue higher degrees and graduate schools, but they may not have the funds to do so. They may not have stable housing or um, other financial type of opportunities to reach their goals. So I think it's important for the state to evaluate some of their funding and maybe allocate some funding for our local students who wish to pursue graduate schools and, and would like to continue um, to you know, stay here and provide their services here in Hawaii. Um, you know, so it's it's a combination of um, providing you know providing opportunities to our local population as well as improving um, you know the financial health. Um, in terms of inviting people from the mainland to come live here. <laughs> <laughs> that may be more difficult. That may be way more challenging, you know, given the, <laughs> the, um, the cost of living here. I mean, you know, on one side, it, it seems very attractive to move to Hawaii and live in Hawaii. But then on the other hand, you just feel like, ah, is that financially feasible? Because right. um, it's so far. And it's, it's also very far. So, you know, if we focus on who do we have here on the island, who are you know, our, who, who are, you know, our people here who actually want to go to school, want to, to, you know, provide services for Hawaii and who also understand the culture, understand 
um, all the crises that you know we've been through here, which can be quite different from the mainland. Um, so, you know, if we focus on that, I think we may be able to improve our shortage of providers and maybe figure out a way to compensate or um, yeah, provide a little bit more support there. Right, you're, you're talking about the issue of cultural competency wrapped into all of what one would have to have from a professional standpoint. Also, you know, looking at the fact that we've seen telehealth bloom and, and just exponentially just rise above where the plans were for it before COVID, just by necessity, having to go through this process and have these screens be the way in which you could access someone for all kinds of, of health needs, but especially for behavioral health. Have you found in having to deal with people through a screen like this that you're having more issues come up for them than you had before because it's such a different medium and learning how to have that sense of, I don't want to say intimacy, but to be able to talk with someone and look at them and see more than just what happens on a flat screen. We, I ask you this because some people have said, no, really it's been okay. And others have said, you know, it's really been difficult for some of our patients to get through that. And I'm, I'm curious what you've been experiencing. We know it's, an, it's a very interesting dynamic. Um, you know, our, what, what used to be called couch therapy turned into <laughs> bathroom therapy. <laughs> And I'll explain, I'll explain in just a moment. Um, you know, so the beauty of telehealth, you know, you have this accessibility to your patients, your providers, and so on and so forth. So yes, it is connecting. It, it, you still maintain a pretty good therapeutic alliance and rapport and all the, you know, therapeutic ingredients that are needed. And at the same time, it's a complicated dynamic because suddenly the only place you know, a, a patient can have a therapy is in the bathroom. So I've been seeing quite a few people in their bathrooms and, and it's okay. If this is what we have to do, that's what we have to do because this is the only confidential place or the only place where they can be in, in, in their own privacy and not interrupted by children, spouses, family members, and you know, so on and so forth. And, you know, if that's what we have to do, that's what we have to do. Um, so, on, you know, in one aspect, it has been working out quite well, um, especially for a more vulnerable type of population with, um, you know, immuno, uh, immunodeficient um, systems and really need to take mm -hmm. good care of themselves, especially in the beginning of um, the pandemic. Um, so that was, a, you know, telehealth has been a wonderful tool to you know, keep their anxiety in check or just to stay connected with people to help them get through this um, pandemic or the peak of the pandemic back in March, April, May. Um, at the same time, for other people, it has been very problematic for people who don't have reliable electronic devices, who may not have good internet connection um, or any internet connection or any internet connection um, or you know or they would just have to do uh, a phone session as opposed to video zoom or um, other um, telehealth platform um, you know also understanding that they may not have 
a safe place to fully express. And I did notice um, right away the you know shift in that energy when, or, or self-disclosure with some of my patients. Suddenly, you know, they, they're a little bit distant. And then I really realized like, wow, like, okay, so you're not by yourself. You, you can't talk freely. And they say, yes, yes, that's right. That's right. I, I, you know, I really want to have the session and yet I can't say everything I need to say because I'm, I'm not by myself. And so there's self-editing and self-limiting. And so you're really not being able to do as much as you would like to do or could do if you were together as usual. Absolutely. So, and and this as, calls as, for, go ahead. You know, sorry, and this calls for, you know, cognitive flexibility. You just, you know, meet them on their level. You you identify their needs right there in the moment and you, you just go with that. Um, so I've noticed that I myself had to really check in with myself with my own flexibility because I've you know gotten used or I was trained to do therapy in a certain way, right. in a certain setting with under certain conditions and suddenly I feel a little off because I have to adjust to what is happening on the receiving end. I think if there is really a through line for this conversation and for perhaps the entire COVID experience that people have been having all this time, it really is that cognitive flexibility and learning how to respond differently and being okay with it. And I really want to thank you for the conversation this morning and for just everything that I know that you're doing with the Hawaii Psychological Association and that you will do during your tenure there as president. And I really want to wish you all the best with all of that. Dr. Noza Yusuf Bekova, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us for another conversation from anxiety to clarity. If you would like to suggest a topic for us, you can always reach me at my email. It's KozlovB, it's K-O-Z as in zebra, L-O-V as in Victor, B as in boy, at SutterHealth.org. And if you have a question, you can send it to that same email too, and we'll make sure that you get an answer. Otherwise, we will see you next time right back here for another conversation taking us from anxiety to clarity. I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich. Aloha.